Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. The Treaty of New Echota initiated the removal of Cherokees from their homelands to Oklahoma. That same treaty promised Cherokees a delegate seat in the U.S. Congress. Nearly 200 years later, the Cherokee Nation is pushing for the U.S. government to uphold that promise. The U.S. Senate ratified the treaty on this date 187 years ago. We'll talk with Cherokee historians about the events surrounding the treaty signing and the tragic aftermath. That's coming up after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. Although climate change has left some Alaska Native communities just a storm away from destruction, the struggle to get help from government agencies is just as daunting. An international human rights group hopes to change that. The Organization of American States is coming to Alaska this week to hear directly from tribes. Shalote Songo oversees a branch of the OAS that advocates for indigenous peoples displaced by climate change. She says her mission is to make sure tribes have a say in what happens and are treated with dignity. There's a lot of commonalities around the issues that they're experiencing. They're on the front lines of the climate crisis. They've been exposed to years and years of government neglect. While state and federal governments do respond to disasters caused by climate change, Songo says their efforts fall short of helping communities make a long-term recovery or adapt to the threats. The OAS has partnered with groups like the Alaska Institute for Justice to increase funding and improve government response. The Institute's director, Robin Bronin, calls the climate crisis one of the greatest human rights challenges of our time. Yet despite that, she says government efforts are scattered across too many agencies with no real structure in place to address problems in a systemic way. There is an urgency to the climate crisis that the government is struggling to respond to. And our hope is with this visit, that it will elevate this issue so that communities all over the United States, and especially in Alaska, get the resources that they need to implement their adaptation strategies. Ronan says it will take hundreds of millions of dollars to help communities move to safety or recover from disasters. But for indigenous peoples, there are also cultural, economic, and social impacts that can be equally devastating. The Human Rights Group will visit two communities Thursday on the Kuskokwim River and the Bering Sea coast. On Friday, the group heads to a barrier island on the Chukchi Sea. All three communities plan to move to higher ground. The commission started the week in Louisiana, where it met with tribes also being forced to relocate due to climate change. The Yorok Tribal Council has issued an emergency declaration in response to the fentanyl crisis on and near the Yorok Reservation in California. The declaration directs the Yorok Tribal Court and the Yorok Public Health Department to oversee the tribe's response to the crisis. According to the tribe, in the last 12 months, fentanyl has taken the lives of Yorok citizens. This spring, Yorok law enforcement and justice officials discussed the fentanyl crisis during a legislative roundtable at the state capitol in Sacramento. Chief Judge Abby Abenanti with the York Tribal Court told lawmakers there needs to be partnerships and more assistance from the state. No, we cannot ignore this. And we need to be in partnerships with our natural partners. And that means law enforcement. It means health services. It means we need mobile clinics in rural areas. 
We need regional treatment centers, not treatment centers that we have to go hundreds of miles to that may not have room for us. This is not right. This is a state that can do better and needs to do better. The York Tribal Council also made it mandatory for all tribal government staff to be trained in giving Narcan, which can reverse effects of an opioid overdose. Fentanyl is a potent synthetic opioid, which is said to be 50 times stronger than heroin. The tribal declaration also includes xylazine, which is a sedative used on animals. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by AARP. AARP creates and connects people to unique tools and programs, helps conserve personal resources, and tackles issues that matter most to individuals, families, and communities. More at aarp.org. Matika Wilbur traveled thousands of miles across 50 states in 10 years to interview and photograph indigenous people. You can now get her book, Project 562, at project562.com. Penguin Random House supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. The U.S. Congress is still mulling over the idea of appointing a non-voting congressional delegate from the Cherokee Nation. It would be a first for a tribe, putting a Native nation on the same status as Washington, D.C. and U.S. territories like Samoa and the Virgin Islands. The reasoning for a Cherokee delegate is not new. In fact, it's an element in the Treaty of New Echota, which was ratified on this date 187 years ago today. That same treaty mandated the Cherokee Nation cede their homelands and set the stage for the Trail of Tears. Today on the show, we'll get perspectives on the Treaty of New Echota from Kim Teehee, the Cherokee Nation's nominated congressional delegate. We'll also hear from Cherokee historians about the treaty's legacy and what else the U.S. has not owned up to. We would very much like to hear from you, too. Join our conversation with questions and comments by calling 1-800-996-2848. Joining us now from Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is Kim Teehee. She is the Cherokee Nation Delegate Designee to the U.S. House of Representatives. She's also a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Kim, welcome back to NAC. Thank you for having me, Sean. Joining us from Penn State University is Julie Reed. She is an Associate Professor of History at Penn State. She's also a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Julie, welcome. Thank you. Speaking with us also in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is Candessa Teehee. She is an associate professor of Cherokee and Indigenous Studies at Northeastern State University and a Cherokee Nation Councilwoman. Candessa, thank you for joining us. Also joining us now is Catherine Foreman Gray. She is the History and Preservation Officer for the Cherokee Nation and a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Catherine, welcome back to NAC as well. Hello, thank you. I'd like to go ahead and begin today's conversation with Kim. And Kim, th 
this idea of a tribal delegate serving in the U.S. House of Representatives, it's certainly one that gets a lot of people's attention. Please update us on the status of the federal government's promise to seat a delegate from Cherokee Nation. Well, after lots of time spent in digging into um, historical documents, you know, history, not only of Cherokee Nation specific history, but also, you know, of the Congress, of, you know, the United States history, Federalist Papers and such. I mean, we had to dig deep into a lot of documents in order to answer a lot of the questions that um, were raised as we educated members of Congress. All of that work culminated ultimately into a a hearing uh, last year uh, before the House Rules Committee, which ultimately was determined to be the Committee of Jurisdiction who um, has oversight authority over seating Cherokee Nation's delegate. And during that hearing, I think you saw the effect of our efforts to educate because member after member on both sides of the political aisle uh, were very supportive of uh, this issue. Importantly, uh, there was a switch in majority in the House, and so as a result, the leadership of the House Rules Committee has also flipped. So uh, the chairman is is now uh, Tom Cole, who's a Chickasaw citizen and from Oklahoma, and the ranking member, which is the the top Democrat on the committee, uh, Mr. McGovern, now serves as the the top Democrat of the committee, and they in their parting uh, colloquy before ending the last session, committed to um, continuing their efforts to find a pathway to seat uh, the Cherokee Nation delegate to Congress. And so part of our efforts now, because there is a flip and an acknowledgement of that, that we focus on educating the a majority party now, the Republican caucus, on our issues, providing them the same kinds of information and answering the same sorts of questions and really focusing in on this issue uh, with them. This all sounds really promising. Can you explain how your position is rooted in this 187-year-old Treaty of New Echota? Yes, so the treaty contains you know, many provisions. It obviously was the removal treaty where we gave up about 7 million acres of land in return for 5 million, and, uh, and uh, it also set forth provisions for the removal to occur. Uh, included in that treaty is Article 7, which expressly states that Cherokee Nation shall have a right to a delegate in the House of Representatives whenever Congress makes provision for the same. It's a very express, explicit, very direct um, treaty right. Um, that remains valid to this day. And so it is still the supreme law of the land. And that's where the authority comes from in the treaty. Cherokee Nation's own authority comes from our own tribal constitution, which gives the principal chief of the Cherokee Nation the legal authority to appoint a delegate and for the council of the Cherokee Nation to uh, confirm the delegate. And so I am appointed by the elected and confirmed by the elected leaders of the Cherokee Nation. And I am you know, today the, the delegate to Congress. I was grateful to get the unanimous support of the Council of the Cherokee Nation in 2019. In 2019. Now, as a non-voting member of Congress, explain exactly what that means. What type of of provisions will will that allow for a delegate such as yourself? 
So we're seeking similar authority to U.S. territory delegates uh, in that delegates have a right to serve in committees, they have a right to vote in committees, to introduce legislation, to um, offer amendments in committees, to speak on their legislation and other legislation. The distinction between delegates and representatives of the House is that vote on the House floor for final passage. That's, that's important here because that is the legal distinction between a delegate and the representatives of the House who have final votes. You see those final votes on the House floor are, are you know, they can either affirm or they can um, reverse uh, committee actions up to that point. And so there is quite a bit that delegates can do in the deliberative process of lawmaking. Understood. Now, Kim, what do you hope to accomplish as a delegate? Well, there's there's plenty to accomplish. Uh, you know, I think the number one thing that we have been focused on uh, has been funding. You know, we have, you know, advocated for some time now, forward funding, mandatory funding, funding that provides certainty to not only our tribe, but all tribes who are fairly recognized in that, you know, we know that government shutdowns cause great disruption in funding. Sequestration causes great disruption in funding. And now, you know, we are very focused on the debt limit and the discussions taking place there because, you know, there are some proposals that would claw back uh, unobligated COVID dollars from the agencies that would, you know, unfortunately, um, mean that those agencies would be without certain resources to continue to assist tribes uh, that are oftentimes in the most vulnerable position and need that funding. And so we're very focused on funding. But in addition to that, obviously, being a government, we have needs that are, you know, wide-ranging needs from connectivity, healthcare, even our cultural um, elements too. Uh, protecting our language, for example, is a big priority of the Cherokee Nation. Now, Kim, um, you have been nominated, to, to be clear to our listeners, you've been nominated for this uh, seat as a delegate, but you're not actually there in Congress currently. Is that correct? That's correct. I'm okay. actually, Chief Hoskin, when he nominated me to be the delegate, our Constitution required our Council of the Cherokee Nation to confirm me. So I am Cherokee Nation's delegate to Congress. I'm our delegate designate to Congress, but we still need the House of Representatives to vote straight up and down to seat our delegate. Okay. And when do you hope that vote occurs? And, and how likely is it? I mean, you mentioned earlier bipartisan support, but you just never know. I mean, how confident are you, Kim, that you will ultimately be in Congress there in Washington, D.C.? Well, you know, I know you've got historians on this call, but I can tell you that, you know, our from our history, you know, we're a patient people who are persistent, and ultimately, I'm confident that Congress will seat Cherokee Nation's delegate. You know, we continue to, uh, you know, do the things that put us on a right path uh, last year, and we'll continue to educate and to advocate for uh, the Congress to seat the delegate uh, this year. But if it doesn't happen, then we're going to continue to fight, you know, in order to get Congress to keep its word. I mean, we, you know, the mere action of forcibly removing our people from the east to where we are today in Oklahoma, you know, meant that that treaty um, was uh, implemented by the United States. And they have, a, you know, a legal obligation to honor a treaty right that has yet to be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. Kim, 
we have listeners all over the country that tune into Native America calling and tribal nations all over the country. And anytime an issue like this comes up, the first thing other people are thinking is, well, what about my tribe? Is there perhaps an opportunity for my tribal community, my tribal nation, to send a delegate to Congress? And is that a possibility? Are there other tribal nations in Oklahoma and other areas that are looking at similar treaty uh, precedents that could enable them to send delegates to Congress in the future? Sure. What we know are there are a few other treaties that speak to having a some some kind of representation, either a deputy, uh, you know, of, of sorts. I think what is clear, uh, even from the members of Congress themselves and the House Rules Committee, is that Cherokee Nation's right to a delegate is, uh, you know, is the most clear language. So, you know, our position is we don't we don't stand in the way of, you know, uh, the Delaware or uh, the Chickasaws and Choctaws that also have um, a similar treaty right. You know, but I think those tribes would concede that our language is the most clear. Let's break that glass ceiling by starting with the tribe that has the most clear language. While, you know, those tribes then work to, like just as we did, work on answering the questions because they have to dig deep into their history, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so that's that's kind of what where we are. Kim Teehee is Cherokee Nation's nominated congressional delegate. We've got her on the show today talking about this uh, historic, historic position on the 187-year anniversary of the ratification of the Treaty of New Echota. We're going to talk more with Kim as well as the treaty when we come back from this break. Think the writer strike is just a far-off Hollywood problem? It has the potential to affect some of your favorite native-themed TV shows. Screenwriters say they aren't being compensated for the extra product studios are providing audiences. We'll hear from some professional writers about what's at stake on the next Native America Calling. Center for Medicare and Medicaid Service. Listening to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. We're diving into the history of the Treaty of New Echota and the tragedy of the Trail of Tears. If you have a comment or question for today's conversation, you can call us at 1 800 996 2848. That's also 1 800 99 Native. You can also continue today's conversation under any of today's social media posts. On the line now in Tahlequah, Oklahoma, is Kim Teehee. She is the Cherokee Nation Delegate Designee to the U.S. House of Representatives. And Kim, I want to ask you, because here it is today, uh, it was 187 years ago, on this date in 1836, that the Treaty of New Echota went into effect. It was ratified. How do you look back uh, at the anniversary of this treaty signing and the significance that it has on the Cherokee Nation, even now here today, almost 200 years later? Well, I'm always mindful. I tell you, one of the, I've had a couple of moments that have been quite emotional for me. One was when I uh, went to the National Archives 
and saw the original treaty, all the multiple pages, the handwritten treaty, and how small the treaty was. You know, it's just on, you know, paper size akin to eight and a half by 10 paper we see today, front and back, and just how detrimental that treaty was in that it caused, you know, a quarter of our population to perish on that forced march um, and that removal that occurred. I'm also mindful of my own ancestors uh, that perished and those who survived on the Trello Tears. I was able to visit this area called Blythe Ferry in Tennessee. And there is a memorial of, you know, Georgia, with, of states of Georgia, Tennessee, and such that lists the names of the people who were um, last went to the, of where they were last at and the Cherokee Reservation before they were ferried over the Tennessee River. And, you know, I have ancestors that are on those walls in Georgia and the Tennessee walls where their names are listed. You know, there's six of them that I can locate. And uh, by each name is a number. And the number is the amount of family that accompanied them. So I can count nearly 60 people just from those direct ancestors. But that doesn't at all include the those who perished and those who were of extended family either. So I'm very mindful of the direct connection that I have to the Trelateers and that our nation has to the Trelateers. And the fact that that treaty um, was led to so much um, so much tragedy. And so I think about that, you know, and all that Cherokee Nation wants at the end of the day is for the United States to keep its word in the Article 7, which is, you know, Cherokee Nation um, negotiated that right, and it is the law of the land to give some small measure of justice to those who lost their lives on the forced removal. Kim, thanks for kicking off our discussion today. I'd like to pivot now to Julie Reed, who, again, is an associate professor of history at Penn State and also a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. And Julie, welcome again to the show. And can you provide a brief, excuse me, a brief background on the Treaty of New Echota? Why was it put before the Cherokee exactly? Well, I mean, it, it's coming off of kind of a, a, a wave of different efforts by federal officials to force removal of the Cherokees from the Southeast and the other five tribes as well. Um, and I, you know, throughout this period, we have to remember that in the in the wake of the War of 1812, that the Cherokees had written two treaties um, that actually separated our North Carolina Cherokee relatives from us through those treaties, and we'd gotten through that removal crisis that also led some of our our um, kin to leave earlier for the West because the pressures on them had become too great in the East, and those pressures don't discontinue leading up to. Um, to the Treaty of New Echota. Now, what, what changes in that kind of moment between those 1719, 1817-1819 treaties and the Treaty of New Echota is the Indian Removal Act, um, which mounts increasing pressure on the tribes who have not submit in some way to either removal or taking private reserves to, to come to the table and negotiate. And the Cherokee Nation had already been very clear that they had no intention of negotiating their lands away. Now, I think the other piece of this we have to remember is that uh, other treaties are being signed by other Native nations, and the Cherokee Nation is attempting to hold out throughout that whole period, and that other versions of the treaty were drafted collectively going up to that, that Treaty of 1835. So, and, and that we shouldn't see those those draftings necessarily as a a, a, a 
concession to removal so much as also a resistance to removal, that that slows down the process and it also makes sure that you get the things in that treaty that will be most urgent and important to your larger community moving forward. Um, and of course, even though people like um, Elias Budnot and Major Ridge and John Ridge had been on the same side with John Ross, really through the 1830s, it's, it's only after the Wooster v. Georgia decision um, when Ridge and others are, are certain that Andrew Jackson intends to move forward regardless of the Supreme Court's decision that those men change their position and, and really believe at that point that removal is inevitable and, and go to the table with negotiators to negotiate a treaty, a treaty that is largely against the will of the, the, the larger body of Cherokee people, including Principal Chief John Ross. Now, Julie, those um, Cherokee members that, that did support the treaty, though, they were, it was a much fewer number, is that correct, than, than the majority that, that, is, that were opposed? It is correct, yes. So it, it is a, a, a smaller body of Cherokee people, and at the time that they signed that treaty, none of them were, were in an official capacity that enabled them to actually legally make that treaty. Um, and so this is where the, the contestation to that treaty comes in, and that, that they were not performing a, an official capacity for the Cherokee Nation, and therefore the treaty should have never gone before Congress. Um, from the perspective of the larger body of, of both elected officials and, and most Cherokee people. So they were kind of an unrepresentative minority in kind of two different ways. Okay. So you had these two opposing competing divisions within the Cherokee, one led by John Ross, who wanted to remain in their eastern homelands, and the other led by this major ridge who supported relocation. They felt it was just inevitable there to the Indentorian in the West. And uh, what about other key elements of the treaty? Were they in agreement or disagreement on those other factors? They actually agreed on a lot. I mean, and, and I think we overplay the kind of divisions amongst uh, these, particularly these po political men in this moment, that there were provisions in the treaty for Cherokee-controlled education. Um, Cherokee Nation had largely... Um, had to rely on outside missionaries and benevolent societies to provide education. So there are lots of provisions for funds for education that most of those treaty signers were absolutely on board with, along with um, people who opposed that final treaty. There were provisions for um, for certain parts of removal, including doctors to accompany um, all of the all of the groups that moved west, which would have which was actually a, a, a step away from some of the other tribes that didn't have that kind of medical care. So there were, there were lots of provisions in there that were amenable to many people. One of the other provisions was a protection of pensions for War of 1812 veterans that they had received after that, that, that treaty, treaty writers and drafters collectively agreed should be a part of, of whatever went forward. So there's a lot of agreement um, the, the, the basic disagreement is had they actually reached a point that, that warranted um, a fair agreement. And, and I would say most that, that's where the rubber hit the road for, for National Party leaders under the leadership of John Ross. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that group that, that supported the treaty, and, and as you mentioned, they didn't have authority to sign that treaty, uh, what were the repercussions? for that group that was led by 
by Ridge and well, his I mean, associates. In, in 1839, and in, in at the close of, of forced removal of the larger body of Cherokee people, um, Major Ridge, Don Ridge, Elias Boudinot, um, a, along with an attempt on Stan Wadi's life, the first three men were executed on the exact same day for their role in that treaty, which um, the language I choose to use is that it, it forced us and forced us into a internal civil war that okay. really didn't close until 1846 with a, with a, a secondary treaty following up the Treaty of Nerecherta. And, okay. and arguably, we, you know, we hadn't reached an end there either. And to be clear, they were executed by their own people, Cherokee people. Yes. Yes. Really, really interesting, interesting history that we're discussing on the show today, folks, and also how it applies to current day and uh, this whole discussion now with regard to a Cherokee congressional delegate. Uh, anybody that has any insights on this topic today, maybe you are a Cherokee citizen yourself or you're familiar with Cherokee history, you just like to learn more about what we're talking about. Our phone lines are open right now, 1-800-996-2848. Again, we're talking about the Treaty of New Echota. And with that, I'd like to bring in our third guest on the show and guest Tihi, who again is an associate professor of Cherokee and Indigenous Studies at Northeastern State University and a Cherokee Nation Councilwoman. And Candessa, um, this is just so fascinating listening to Kim and Julie both. And I would like you to, to chime in as well, because as we mentioned, the majority of Cherokees didn't support the Treaty of New Echota. So can you give us a little bit more background on that smaller group that did and, and their reasoning and justification for the decisions they made? Well, I think there are a lot of individuals in our present day who seek to gain a better understanding of what motivated them to to um, to sign the treaty. Um, largely because, in you know, in hindsight, we see we are able to see the great destruction that was wrought upon by uh, wrought upon uh, Cherokee Nation and its people. You know that that was we we see that as the end result of of the Treaty of New Echota, um, and so seeking to gain understanding of what what motivated them, I think, is, is important. We don't want to um, either mythologize um, actors in the past, nor do we want to demonize them. They were you know they were individuals with humanity, and they had the best intentions for for Cherokee Nation and its people. And so in, in thinking about these things and in reading some of the writings of the time, um, specific, specifically from Elias Budno, they felt as though they were staving off um, what would be an even greater um, destruction were Cherokee Nation c to continue to fight to stay in the homelands. Um, you know, we see John Ross um, instructing Cherokee citizens to continue to plant crops, to continue to plant their corn um, into 1838. And, um, you know, Elias Boudinot, Major Ridge, John Ridge um, saw this as um, ultimately potentially causing um, greater destruction, heartache, and loss of life. And so they, they, I, I do believe they thought they were doing the best thing for, for Cherokee Nation and its future. And um, unfortunately, we have seen history 
um, and, and a lot of contemporary Cherokee people judged them pretty harshly for the actions that they took. Right, right. Yeah, definitely so. And we have to remember 187 years, that was a long time ago, and it's very easy to make assumptions now looking back. But I do want to ask you, Candessa, because if I'm not mistaken, uh, Major Ridge was a wealthy person. He owned a plantation. He had economic interests. Was there uh, an economic or a wealth factor involved with his decision and his supporters' decision to, to sign the treaty as opposed to the other Cherokees? Who did not want that treaty to be signed? Boy, that is an interesting question. Um, <laughs> I, I, I am. I'm not quite sure whether you know. It, it's tricky to to kind of try to put yourself in the shoes of these past historical figures, and um, I, I, I do generally think that these individuals were working with the greater interest of the public good within their actions. I'm very hesitant to ascribe them with um, solely pecuniary motivation in, in their signatures on the treaty. I do know that um, there are treaty, you know, signers, signatories to the treaty who traveled separately under armed guard um, to, to what was then Indian Territory, what is currently Oklahoma. Um, so they did not experience um, some of the same perils that um, the other four detachments of, of Cherokee citizens who endured the Trail of Tears experienced. Um, so, so I'm I'm really hesitant to um, ascribe a personal motivation to those individuals, but it's also um, it, it's also unfortunately a potential uh, a potential source of motivation for them. All right, thank you, Candessa. At this point, I'd like to go ahead and pivot out to our next guest, Catherine Foreman Gray, History and Preservation Officer for Cherokee Nation. Catherine, welcome again. And if I'm not mistaken, Catherine. You have a very unique connection to this issue today because you have an ancestor who actually signed the Treaty of New Echota. So please, can you offer any further insights into the motivations of those folks that signed the treaty back in back in over 187 years ago? Uh, yes, I think what this treaty did, I, I do descend from uh, James Starr Sr., who in 1845 uh, was also killed uh, by Ross's men. Um, for signing the Treaty of New Echota. And what this treaty did really was pit Cherokees against Cherokees. Um, you know, the majority were adamantly opposed to this treaty and, you know, Cherokees were doing all that they could to try to stay on homelands. And I think, you know, today we're just now getting at a point where I feel like we're wanting to talk about this a little bit more as a people. You know, we're just now getting, uh, some of us descendants do descend from people who are on both sides of this. And it, it, it's a lot to digest, and as, as Candessa previously mentioned, you know, trying to put ourselves in, in what these men were thinking about in this time period, um, you know, nobody wanted to remove, and um, but there's all this violence that starts occurring and lawlessness that's happening in, in Georgia, especially after their harassment laws are passed. And, you know, Jackson had no intention of, of enforcing anything with, with Wooster v. Georgia, and, you know, we can stay in the southeast, and we're going to become second-class citizens, or we can go ahead and move west. And I feel like what the treaty party did is um, they're really looking at the future of the Cherokee Nation. I've sometimes been accused of being a little bit too um, maybe 
uh, you know, with the treaty party being a little bit too um, kind to them sometimes. But these men, when you read some of the, their writings of the time, they loved their nation. And when you look at what Major Ridge is saying as well, you know, he talks about how, you know, if they stay in the Southeast, it's going to cost the lands, um, you know, lives and the lives of children. And he thought that the future existence of the Cherokee Nation, um, you know, to make a treaty was, was the best way to do this. And so it's uh, such a complex time to try to put ourselves, you know, into what they were thinking, because I really do think that all of these men, whether they were pro-removal or anti-removal, really wanted what was best for the Cherokee Nation. Mm -hmm. Really good insights there, Catherine. And I have read that Major Ridge is quoted as saying, after signing that treaty, I have signed my death warrant. So we're going to talk a lot more about this on the other side of this break. 1-800-99-NATIVE, the number to call with questions. Challenges to societal harmony abound. Trauma, depression, addiction. In Native communities, these challenges affect nearly everyone. The Native American Social Work Studies Institute educates social workers for careers to address the needs of Native communities. You can be part of the solution as a peer support worker, community health worker, or a counselor with culturally relevant training from the Native American Social Work Studies Institute. Info at online.nmhu.edu. New Mexico Highlands University supports this show. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. How important is it for the U.S. to honor its treaties with Native nations like the one we're talking about today, the Treaty of New Echota? Let us know at 1-800-996-2848. 1-800-996-2848. Would really like to get some calls going today. Phone lines are open again. Tell us, how important is it that the U.S. honor its treaties with Native nations? We'd really like to hear from some listeners on our show today. And I would like to pivot back now to Candessa Teehee, who was an associate professor of Cherokee and Indigenous Studies at Northeastern State University. And Candessa, we've been talking a lot about your people, uh, Cherokee Nation, tribe members, and there are also two other uh, Cherokee nations in the United States, the Eastern Band of Cherokee, who are currently in North Carolina, Western North Carolina, and of course, the United Ketua Band, which is a much smaller group of Cherokee that are also a federally recognized tribe in Oklahoma. Tell us more about their impact and their role and how they were affected by the Treaty of New Echota and some of these issues we're talking about today. Well, um, <laughs> in, you know, when we're, when we're looking back in, into history, we see that um, the the last council meeting of the Unified Cherokee Nation was held in 1837 in um, in Red Clay, which is um, just east of Chattanooga. And um, so, so prior to prior to the Trail of Tears, you know, we were we were one tribal nation, and it wasn't until after um, after the Trail of Tears that we actually became three separate federally recognized tribal nations. Um, <clears throat> we see the um, and, and so are, are you asking this question with uh, in regards to how it bears on the 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 delegate or more about just how it it, it played into their history in how they are today as nations. You know the fact that the Eastern Band are in North Carolina, you folks are in Oklahoma, and just how that has all transpired over the this last two centuries. Oh, okay. All right. Well, um, what we what we eventually see after the Trail of Tears is 
the formation of two separately federally recognized tribal governments known as the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians and the New United Ketua Band of Cherokee Indians of Oklahoma. Um, the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians is located in Cherokee, North Carolina. They have their own separate uh, system of governments, including their own separate legislature, executive, and uh, judicial branch. And the United Ketua Band of Cherokee Indians of Oklahoma is headquartered in Tahlequah. And um, to, to my knowledge, was formed um, close to 100 years after the um, after the Trail of Tears, um, the United Ketua Band is also regarded as its own separate federally recognized tribal government. It has its own separate legislature um, and executive branch as well. And um, if it were not for the Trail of Tears, we probably would have continued to be one people in our homelands in, uh, in the Eastern Seaboard. Okay. Now, one figure we just can't overlook uh, in the background of all of these events was President Andrew Jackson, a uh, polarizing figure, if ever there was one. Uh, Candessa, how do the, the Cherokee people today view Andrew Jackson? Oh, gosh. Um, not, with any, not with any love, that's for sure. Um, President Andrew Jackson um, has a long history with, with Cherokee people, even prior to his ascendance to the presidency. Um, you know, he was, a, he was a military leader, and he actually did fight with Cherokee people. Um, he, um, you know, there, there's a, a sitting councilman, uh, Sean Crittenden, who recently, you know, had a country song that says, um, give me two tens instead of a 20, because he wants to really avoid those bills that have Andrew Jackson on them. I've heard um, the we song, still yeah. Tell, yeah, yeah. That, and we still tell, um, we still tell stories in Cherokee Nation as well about a figure named Jake Skeen, and that loosely translates to Jack the Devil. And in these stories, um, Jake Skeen is someone who's a real buffoon. He, he does things that don't make sense. Um, everyone laughs at him. Everyone makes fun of him. And we tell these stories as a, almost like a cautionary tale. You know, you shouldn't be this way. You shouldn't behave this way. And a lot of people think that those stories are told um, in retribution to, to Jackson and for his actions in, in really betraying the Cherokee people after having fought alongside Cherokee warriors. I'd like you to go back now to Julie Reed. And Julie, could you uh, offer any additional insights with regard to Andrew Jackson? Because it, for better or worse, he just played such a huge role in Cherokee history during this time period. Yeah, I mean, he did. And, and I think you know, want to echo Candessa's point that he had a longer relationship with, with indigenous people in the South. And, and you know, he had again, fought with, with Cherokee people during the War of 1812, and very quickly after that was a treaty negotiator on the treaties that followed, which extracted even more land from Cherokee people in the years leading up to Indian removal. So there was, you know, there was clear warning quite early that Jackson was not um, not an ally and and would only kind of probably be up to more nefarious um, work if he were if he were elevated in other ways, which ultimately winds up happening. And so 
again, even after allying with, with Cherokees during the War of 1812, he winds up extracting lands. His troops had done major damage to um, Cherokee lands, it, moving across them to um, battlefronts during the War of 1812. And he, he fought the payments that were due to Cherokee people for the destruction of their property, the theft of, um, the theft of, of cattle, um, the violence against women that was carried out by those troops, and essentially, um, you know, essentially just denied a, a lot of the damage that was wrought in the in, in during that that War of eighteen twelve period. And so, again, there's a lot of history leading up to um, the Treaty of Noachota, and and so the writing was already on the wall um, that Andrew Jackson was no good, no good <laughs> um, for Cherokee people and people in the Native South more broadly. Julie, thank you for those additional insights. I want to go back to Catherine Foreman Gray now. And Catherine, what's really coming across today is the historical complexity regarding the Cherokee removal and by extension, the Treaty of Nuachota. How well understood are these issues as we talk about them now nearly 200 years later? Yeah, as I briefly mentioned before, I think, you know, especially for for descendants um, today, you know, this is a... I think we're trying to figure out a way to heal from all of this and kind of understand all of the complexities that surround um, the signing of the, the Treaty of New Echota and what happened afterwards. And it's, um, it's, it, it's like whenever June 22nd rolls around every year, we always have this big debate, um, you know, about what, what the treaty party did. Was it, was it right? Was it wrong? You know, some people call them traitors. Some people look at them as, standing up and, and, and trying to, you know, maintain a, a sovereign Cherokee government. And so I, I think as a people, we're just now at a point where we're, you know, kind of far enough removed from, from that time period that we're, that we're really trying to kind of sift through everything that happened during that time and, and really just come to a better understanding, you know, as to, as to why these men signed the treaty, um, you know, what happened, the divisions that came and, and really, at the end of the day, it was the federal government, you know, dividing us as a people is where I lay the blame on. Now, Kim, even after all this time, there are still debates about the legitimacy of the treaty signing. How do you interpret that? Uh, is this me again still? Uh, yes, it's um, how it's interpreted. Um, you know, you'll hear people that just call it a, a you know, they're, they're considered traitors of the Cherokee Nation, um, you know, that they were executed, that they were right, rightfully executed. Um, and then when you see kind of the way that some of those are carried out, uh, I always look to the writings of this time. And, and I, I know that these men loved their people and they loved their nation and they did not want to remove. No one wanted to remove. Um, but again, the violence was just so great, and I felt like they really did think that removal was going to be inevitable, and that they that they had the best interest of the of the Cherokee people at heart. But yeah, it's hard. I mean, we we are still to the to this day. There's there's a lot of emotion that we all start feeling when we when we start talking about the treaty and um, some of the members that signed it and those who opposed it. And you know, again, a lot of people don't even realize. Some of the Ross family was divided over this. John Ross's own brother um, was advocating and had signed uh, the Treaty of New Echota. So uh, this this was felt deeply within not just Cherokee communities, but within Cherokee families. 
and you know on what to do and and again it's something that high emotions you know still exist around this treaty today certainly sounds that way and i want to go ahead and pivot back to kim tehe again and kim earlier you shared uh when we started this conversation about the significance of this history and how now you carry a lot of that on your shoulders as the Cherokee Nation delegate designee. And I just want to ask you again to expound on that and just this responsibility that you carry and and what that means to you going forward there as a representative of your people. And um, what do you hope that other other Cherokee people will draw from with regard to to your historic position there within the tribe? I think what you've heard from Catherine and Condessa and Julie, you know, in retelling of our history is also uh, this notion of, of, uh, of how traumatic the experience was. That's what I always remember. Anytime we talk about the ratification date, you know, when the treaty was signed, there's all these, um, these moments in history and, uh, that occur, and I, and I often also cannot ignore the fact that once removal occurred, the bad stuff didn't end there. Congress continued throughout the 19th century to pass law after law that worked to dismantle our government, even taking away our ability to um, elect a chief. We had presidentially appointed chiefs until the mid-70s when Congress gave us that authority back. So I, I think back at removal what was lost. I also think back at the fact that, you know, even though there were these factions that existed and that that it was the minority of Cherokees who signed that treaty, the fact is, is that the Senate ratified that treaty and President Jackson signed that treaty and it is considered the supreme law of the land. That treaty was effective. It was, it was implemented, right? It was implemented whenever the United States sought to remove by force our people. So that's, I am always mindful of that history and what we lost as a nation and as a people. And, you know, and, and the fact that my own personal story is the story of so many of my fellow Cherokees stories, you know, where we know who our ancestors are that survived and those who perished. And there, but, but there is so much more out there than that. But in the years it took to rebuild the nation, to get us to the point where we can finally assert this treaty right. I mean, that's those are the things that I carry on my shoulder. I also think that it's so important for the United States to keep its word to the Native people, to keep to and to honor a treaty, and to honor this particular treaty right. I do believe that it would give us uh, a seat at the table. You know, we know Indian Country has a few champions that we can count on. You know, one hand uh, who will fall on the sword for Indian issues. And I think there's, you know, room for another seat uh, to have somebody else champion those issues whenever formulating law and policies impacting our communities. But I also think, and I think I said this earlier, that it would give some small measure of justice for the United States to finally keep its promise and to seat this uh, delegate, um, you know, because of those who, you know, lost their lives and who perished on that forced march. Thanks, Kim. We have a little bit of time, enough for one call. We have Jen listening in East Texas online. Jen, if you could keep your comments brief to to less than a minute, I'd sure appreciate it, but I'm glad you called in today. Right. I'm going to try to do that. First of all, I stand with getting Kim seated because I think it will uh, 
put together our history and our future for the Cherokee people. If she can be seated, it will be uh, a healing sort of um, award for her. But I was going to say that the Cherokee people had not had had fought with the French and they had stayed out of the British fight because they thought that the Americans were fighting against their motherland. <clears throat> but they decided to fight when they were summoned by Jackson to fight in the War of 1812. A lot of the reasons was they wanted to be recognized as fellow Americans by this time. They were they were being recognized as a civilized, civilized tribe and so forth, and they thought it okay. would be helpful. And um, uh, the book Jackson Land helps clear up a lot of these questions. And the Rich family, of course, some of them actually moved away from Oklahoma after, um, you know, their relatives were, you know, slayed. But that had been an old custom, which Rich okay. himself. Jim, I'm sorry, Jen, we're, we're going to have to move on. We are really running low on time. But um, I want to go back. I'm going to give Julie the, the last word of the show. And Julie, if you have any other insights to add for today's conversation or perhaps uh, if you have any other ideas for books or other places that people can learn more about this history. Sure. I mean, I think, you know, there, that in terms of, of reading, there's, golly, there's some good books coming out by Sean Tuton. If you want to know more about um, Cherokee understandings of who they were, there's a whole series of books by Theda Perdue and William McLaughlin, who are ally scholars who have written on, um, on Cherokee history throughout this period. Um, but beyond that, I, I, you know, I want to echo Kim's point about um, the treaty being carried forward, right? That, that most of the provisions from the removal treaty w were implemented after negotiations um, post-removal. So schools were implemented, those school funds, orphan funds, pension funds, that there, there is so much that has been fulfilled, and yet we are standing in the way of this one um, provision that is still an, un, a, an untapped provision that is laid out. And, and, and so it strikes me that we, we still haven't undone the damage of removal until we honor the full, the full fleshed out version of that treaty. Julie, thank you for joining us, as well as our other three guests. This has been a really riveting discussion on the Treaty of New Echota, which was ratified 187 years ago today. Please join us again tomorrow. We'll hear about the current writer's strike from Native writers, as well as insights into the screenwriting profession. You've been listening to the one, the only, Native America Calling. Have a great rest of your day. Summer vacation time is here, and you're invited to get to know Albuquerque, New Mexico. Festival Flamenco Albuquerque brings flamenco artists from around the world, and for nine days, starting June 9th, the Pulse of Flamenco transforms Albuquerque into a cultural epicenter. This year's lineup includes Israel Galvan y Compañía, Daniel Doña Compañía de Danza, Tacha Gonzalez, and Jose Valencia y Salvador Gutierrez. The Albuquerque Hispano Chamber of Commerce's Convention and Tourism Department supports this show. Support by the American Indian College Fund. The American Indian College Fund provides millions of dollars of scholarships to thousands of Native students every year. Tribal citizens of every age and experience are eligible. The deadline for applications is May 31st, and you can find everything you need to apply at collegefund.org. That's collegefund.org, or by phone at 800-766-FUND. Education is the answer. 
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.